Teaching is our passion. We at the Wall Street Skinny are proud to announce that we've joined the advisory board for the iConnections Funds for Teachers initiative, focused on supporting the Ron Clark Academy and its pioneering teaching methods. Through Funds for Teachers, iConnections is dedicated to empowering educators nationwide by providing access to RCA's professional development opportunities. Events are being organized in major cities throughout the year to fundraise and support this incredibly important cause. All proceeds from these events will be directly donated to the Ron Clark Academy, specifically to financially aid teachers so they can participate in RCA's groundbreaking training programs. Please click on the link in our show notes to register for an event in the city nearest you. Hey guys, it's Jen and Kristen with the Wall Street Skinny. You may notice that the sound quality in this episode is not up to our usual standards due to a glitch with our recording platform on the day we filmed this interview, but the content here is so incredible that we wanted to get it out to you regardless. We hope you enjoy, and thanks again for listening. This is The Wall Street Skinny, a podcast devoted to exploring the financial services industry and making the world of Wall Street accessible to everyone. Hey guys, welcome back to The Wall Street Skinny. I'm Jen. Hey Kristen, how are you? Good. How are you, Jen? I'm good. I'm good. I uh, I had a big night last night. I went out to this place called Biblio here in Charlotte, which, mm. you know, Biblio, like library. Like Biblioteca? Um, yeah. So it's like a wine library. And the whole premise of the restaurant is that instead of doing food pairings where you have the food and then they do a wine that pairs with the food, mm. you like select the wine and then they come up with food that pairs with the wine, which is like a really cool concept. I like that better. I know, right? Uh, I always want, like, I'm like, I want the wine that I want. Right. I don't care about the food. The food is less important. Exactly. <laughs> I will definitely drink like a Chardonnay with a big piece of steak Same. and have Same. no qualms about it. Mm-hmm. But so last night they had a wine tasting event where it was 20 for 20. So you mm. tasted 20 wines. But I mean, these pours were microscopic. Like you needed an electron <laughs> microscope to see the wine in the glass. Again, because 20 tastings adds up. Oh, and yeah. It's funny because like, you know, they have the spit buckets or whatever, but like mm-hmm. no one uses Who that. Who does right? that? No. Exactly. And they gave you a list. They would only give you one pour of each wine. So they would check you mm. off as they went. And it became, I became like competitive. I was like, well, I have to check off all the boxes, obviously, <laughs> even if I don't want this Rioja or whatever. So it was like, I was in yeah. a competition with myself to like try as many of the wines as I could. And it uh, is crazy how they add up so fast. Cause when I remember going to Napa, and you'd obviously go to all these different wineries and they give you a pour. And, and to your point, like it was like a teeny little pour and you're like, oh, this is good. But by the time you've like hit a couple, you're just like, oh, wow, I can feel this. And Correct. to your point, you're like, I don't want to spit it out because it's good wine. But right, also exactly. like, I don't want to be drunk. And this was something that bothered me when I was pregnant. I really like the taste of wine mm. and all the non-alcoholic wines like don't taste good. I mean, they, I never with, even tried. I did. I did. Wines. I got a bunch, and they just taste like fruit juice that's effervescent. And like, there's something about it. I mean, obviously, I'm not a taste scientist or anything, but like, it's almost. I don't know if it's like the umami or anyone who's ever studied wine is gonna be like, oh my god, what is this person talking about? But there's some taste that alcohol has that you can't just replicate 
with mm-hmm. the non-alcoholic stuff. And mm-hmm. I'm with you. It's like, I love wine because I like the taste of it. But sometimes mm-hmm. I'm like, I don't want to get drunk. I just want right. to have the taste of it. Right, right, right. <laughs> and like, I, take the alcohol love, out. <laughs> I love just the ritual of it. I yeah, love, yeah, yeah. A hundred percent. We've mm-hmm. talked about this. You're very precise about having the right glassware. Uh-huh. I remember on the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills when I think it was Dorit was like fighting was. with one of the yes. other housewives because she served her champagne in a wine glass. And you yeah. were like, I'm so triggered by this. I think it was um, Denise Richards who did that. But yeah. And I was – everyone who watched it was like, what is wrong with this Dorit? Well, I mean, Dorit has – she is who she is. But I was like, I totally empathize. <laughs> if it's the wrong glass – I actually – my favorite restaurant in New York was this restaurant called – well, I mean, it's really sad. It's like, it's such a corporate restaurant, but they had really good, they had this one wine I loved. And so I would go there specifically the for the called? wine. <laughs> Hillstone, which is, it's, it's like a oh. chain. It's like a chain at this point, but uh-huh. they had this wine that I loved. And then they switched their wine glasses to these like really shitty wine glasses. And I was like, well, I'm never going back. <laughs> but it used to be my favorite place to go because I I, I loved that wine they had that only they sold. And then oh. after they switched the the wine glasses, like, well, I can't drink it out of this glass. So I stopped going. I got a bottle of that Rombauer that you had recommended to me and that you were actually drinking in one of our recent social media posts. So I'm excited yes. to try that. I was looking for yes. it. I couldn't find it at Total Wine, but I found it at Whole Foods. Same. Um, they sell it at Whole Foods where you get, you get a discount now. It's like 10% off if you buy six and then you get your 5% discount for the credit card. It's I like mean, such it's a great deal. Free. It's free. And in Massachusetts, there's no tax on it. I'm like, I'm saving so much money here. This actually, I did want to talk about something actually, because you had a really kind of fun night last night. I am a loser and a dork and my husband's in New York. So last week we were talking about valuation and mm-hmm. yesterday for people who are following Instacart went public. And so there's been a lot of chatter about just the valuation. And there's this one professor at NYU. His name is Professor Aswath Demodorin. Yes. And, and he has about him in the yes. beta selection process, right? Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. A hundred. Yes, exactly. And so yesterday I was on YouTube and I was he he had a, a video where he walked through the valuation of Instacart. And it was actually very interesting. I think his Let's fair value with the DCF. Yeah, we definitely should. That's a good point. That's actually a really good in learning about that on, you know, yes. an active case study. It's a little advanced, but if you are already working in the industry, definitely check that out because he has just such amazing insight. So he also has this chart where he goes through the returns to the different investors, right? So to the mm. different venture capital firms. And I think Sequoia, they got in very early, although then they had an investment later and like the returns are great for the early stage. And then they start to go down, 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 and think then they're negative. And so that actually brings us to what we're going to be talking about today, which is... I love it. That's a really good segue. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. we're going to be talking about venture capital today. We're bringing on one of my college classmates who is an awesome person, and we're so lucky to be able to get someone of this caliber on our podcast who is doing something really exciting. And the topic that we're going to explore today is what is venture capital? So today we are joined by Camillo Acosta, and Camillo is one of my friends from school. Princeton has been woefully underrepresented on this podcast. So Camillo, we are so excited. You are our first Princeton alum on here. So take that, Brown, and uh, hopefully the first of many. But Camillo, you have such an impressive resume, and our listeners won't know this, but you and I became friends because we were both part of, well, we became friends because we had some mutual friends in common. 
but we had the shared experience of being part of an on-campus organization called Business Today, which was certainly the foundation of my entire career (laughs) in the financial (laughs) services industry, for better or worse. Your resume is far more impressive than mine. You started out your career interning in venture capital. You've started your own companies in the fintech space. You've done a stint in AI development at Meta or Facebook. And now you're back in the venture capital world. You've got your own firm. So I would love it if you could talk us quickly through your background. Sure. So it was in college, actually, that I decided I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And I started two companies after college. Uh, The first one went sideways. And the second one was a long journey. It was about nine years. And that one was the one that took me out to California, moved out to Mountain View, California initially in San Francisco. And that one was acquired at the beginning of the pandemic. And that's how I ended up at Meta, Facebook. My company was basically divided into one half went to another company in New York, half went to Facebook. And I, I decided to go with the, the Facebook check. So throughout all that, I'd always been interested in venture. I was interested in venture from you know, the earliest days. I remember being in high school talking to friends about VC. And I basically started angel investing sometime like six or seven years ago. And started doing really well at that. And long story short, was bringing in my company investors into some of those deals. Made them a lot of money because they were writing huge checks and I was writing small checks, but that was <laughs> leverage, right? <laughs> I made them a few million, no, several million, tens of millions of dollars, actually. They're like, hey, like you should start your own fund. And that was what kicked off the idea of maybe I should be doing this on my own. But much, much credit and appreciation to, to my investors for, for believing in me, even in another venture beyond my company, but venture capital. That's amazing. And so dumb question. I think maybe some of our listeners will have this question. I certainly have this question. What is venture capital? Oh, so venture capital is a type of financing for equity financing, usually mostly for young businesses that are unproven, that need capital to demonstrate traction, grow, and really be ideally generational businesses. So everything from Apple to Google to Facebook have all received venture capital financing at some point in their journeys. Amazon, like literally all these big companies that have had major impacts on our lives, Airbnb, DoorDash, PayPal, Strike, these are all venture-backed companies. And I think the reason for its existence is that you really need two things. One is money to to grow the business when you're still unproven. And two often is the coaching and guidance of, of a venture investor that knows what we're doing. A lot of times these are first-time founders who they're like, hey, I've never really built a multi-billion dollar business before. And sometimes the, the venture investors on their side of the table have. And so they can really provide guidance. I love that. What's the difference between an angel investor and venture capital? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So an angel is investing their own money, whereas venture capitalists are investing other people's money in the form of a fund. And these are usually, these are limited partners, LPs. And these folks are usually high net worths, family offices, funds of funds, and then at the very top of that ladder is institutionals such as endowments, foundations, and pensions. Got it. So that's the main difference. Much easier to make money as an angel because you only have to return that one check, like, you know, whatever it is, 10K, uh-huh. 5K, 50K. But as a VC, you have to return the whole fund. So it's a lot harder to do that. Got it. When you say return the whole fund, you mean just it's yeah. a much bigger pool of capital? It's a much bigger pool of capital you have to return. So if I'm an angel and I invest in a company, all I have to do now is get my 25K back, ideally, right? Like at least get that money back. I want to make money too, right? So ideally, maybe at 2x or 3x that 25k. But a VC, when when you're investing other people's money, you have a $100 million fund, you have to return the $100 million worst case. But you know, you're trying to actually 3x, 4x, 5x that $100 million. So you're trying to get three, four, five hundred million back, which is a much bigger challenge because the returns on those individual investments have to be much greater than just 
you know, whatever happens in an angel deal. And that's why it's different. And that's why it's harder. Got it. The analog for us is kind of like the difference between a prop shop and a hedge fund where, you know, again, if you're proprietary trading, you're trading your money, maybe your best friend's right. money. But if you're working for a hedge fund, maybe if you are a senior, senior, senior partner or founder of the fund, you have your own money in there. But generally speaking, it's managed money on behalf of others and you have exactly. a fiduciary duty. And is there any differentiation also between where you get involved in the life cycle of a company? So for example, we're really curious about what is pre-seed versus seed stage capital. Like what do all these things mean in terms of entry levels? Yeah. So these like investing stages are always shifting and changing, kind of a moving target. But pre-seed was what was once called friends and family or angel rounds, suddenly became called pre-seed rounds. And it was this venture capitalist by the name of Charles Hudson who kind of invented this stage of investing at the institutional level. So what I mean by the institutional level, I mean like firms, funds coming down and getting involved at that stage of investing. It's usually like the first checks into a company. So it's like, I have an idea, I have a deck, I have a team. I may have some sort of MVP I'm working on or already have uh, fleshed out. And now I need some capital to really, really get it going. Mm -hmm. That's pre-seed again, formerly called like angel rounds, friends and family rounds. And you still see angels and friends and family involved in those rounds, but now increasingly so for the last, since the last five, 10 ish years, you see more and more institutional funds getting into that level because the returns are just spectacular if you, if you get it right, because the valuations are low. So as an example, I think everyone or a lot of people famously heard about Peter Thiel's investment in Facebook. He invested 500 K at a two and a half million dollar valuation, wow. right? So that's like crazy cheap for a company now worth half a trillion, more than half yeah. a trillion dollars. So that's why like it could be very lucrative to invest at the pre-seed stage because those returns really multiply a lot at that level. Got it. And as far as where you're targeting most of your investments, where are you on kind of the life cycle of a company for the most yeah. part? So I'm at the pre-seed and seed stage. So we talked about pre-seed. Seed then is when companies are nowadays, again, it's like an always changing bar, which is difficult for founders to follow sometimes. But now the seed stage is often you have a product in the market, you're making some money, you might have 10K in MRR, you might have- Sorry, what's MRR? Monthly recurring revenue. Ah, uh, thank so you. So we operate on ARR and R in, in, in venture to understand like the traction of a business often. Uh, it's not the only measure of traction, but it is like kind of a, a standard one. So if, you, if you're doing less than a million in ARR, okay, you're more of a seed stage business. If a million to two million now, you're probably gearing up for your series A. You have that level of traction. Again, it's, it's not like a black and white thing, but it's uh -huh. kind of a continuous spectrum. But anyway, so the seed stage company will probably already have a product in the market. It's doing, you know, some decent amount of MRR and ARR, but still not quite ready for that series A of a million to two million in ARR. And what are the, it sounds like there are some guidelines. I know they're always shifting in the market, but what are the general guidelines for the different stages? Like you said, so again, less mm -hmm. than a million and then over a million to one to two million for that series A. As you go further down the series, we've talked about this in previous episodes before. Are there additional guidelines for, okay, like what's the threshold for series B then? And yeah. You know, one to, and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So th again, these things are always changing. 10 years ago, you could raise a series A still, pre-revenue and be like, oh, we've got just great growth. And like, there's a story. Yeah, oh, yeah. that doesn't fly anymore. Really? You really, really need to have a legit business. By the time you get to Series A, and Series B is considered now a growth round. Series B and beyond are growth rounds. So no longer is the business evaluated on like, hmm, is this a good founder that can execute? But like, how is the business growing? Like, what are those unit economics look like? It's basically at that point, financial modeling to some extent. 
it's just a different kind of investing. So very different from what I do, which is I'm assessing founders. At Series B, they're assessing the business. Like, is this really have the potential to get to, you know, a five, $10 billion company based on the numbers, how they look like today and the growth? They don't care about founders. How would you distinguish from, say, a late stage venture capital firm from a growth equity type of a fund or firm? Sometimes there's like a blend there. Mm. Um, so... Sequoia, for example, they have not just a venture practice where they invest a little bit in C, a lot in Series A, but they also you know, get into Series B and they have a growth fund where they're investing in later stage Series C and beyond. So it's starting to like blend and there's a lot of overlap. And now you see like the Tigers and coaches of the world who came from like growth side and tried to dip into like the earlier stage Series A and even earlier sometimes. So there's definitely been a blending there. So for those of us who don't live and play in the venture capital world, you just tossed out two names, Tiger and Sequoia. Those are literally gun to my head. If I had to name three venture capital firms, I would name those two and yours. So who are like the Harvard, Yale, Princeton's of the venture capital world? Like who are the names that everybody needs to know? And who are the up and comers in your mind in the sector? Yeah, excellent question. So like for me, the gold standard are Sequoia, Benchmark, Founders Fund. And the, these are just, they've all started different stages. So Sequoia is probably the oldest one that's still, uh-huh. you know, a beast in the market. They were started in the early 70s, if I'm not mistaken. So about 50 years ago. And have had an amazing, just strong execution as they've transitioned leadership because they've had like two or three, about three, I think, um, leadership transitions over the years. Um, so that's one. The next and a different model from the next one, what I'm describing is benchmark. So Sequoia has a venture practice, hedge fund practice, asset management practice, the growth practice. They have shops in India and China, massive beat, and they do it all really well. Uh-huh. Um, so that's Sequoia. Then you have benchmark, which is historically a very small practice. I think right now they have five or six partners and they've always been small. I think they've been even smaller than that in the past and they have very small funds. They don't go the Sequoia route and raise, you know, billion and a half dollars. They, they, they keep their funds small and they have stellar returns and always have. They don't have associates or junior people. It's just like the five, six partners that they have. Oh, They're really? Pretty, yeah, it's a really different model. And they split the carry evenly, which is also unusual for, for the Valley. It's a very like, we're in it together as a team kind of model. Not that some of the other ones aren't. It's just like, it's reflected in the carry. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I would say the other and one is like... just for our listeners. And the oh, yeah, no, we're going just... to... I want a whole explanation. <laughs> okay, okay. We're going to get into that. All right, all right. Okay. And then uh, probably a newer firm would be like Founders Fund. They were founded in 2005, I think, by Peter Thiel. And slightly different model there. They're super contrarian, but r- relatively new firm that has really established themselves in an amazing, amazing job. Newcomers, I would say, are folks like Radical Ventures. They're based out of Toronto, former founders in AI. Really strong firm because they know what they're doing. They have Jeff Hinton on their like advisory board. He's like a godfather of AI. Okay. Uh, another firm is um, Conviction. Yeah. yeah, like totally new. And then another one is Conviction, which is run by Sarah Guo. She's awesome. She spun out of Greylock, started her own firm as a solo GP last year, raised a hundred million bucks. Really impressive, especially because she's a woman in a frankly a world that's dominated by like white men, and she's just like crushing it. That's yeah. awesome. Okay, now so to Kristen's question, so. Before yeah. we get deeper into this world, explain to us the basic economics of how a venture capital fund makes money. So we talked earlier yeah. about you were like, we have to return on, on the fund, right? Mm-hmm. Like, okay, whatever our investment is, we need to make that back and hopefully more. Yeah. So mm-hmm. basic investing 101. But you spoke about carry. I'd love for you to speak about payouts, how you evaluate performance, what their thresholds are, hurdle rates, all that fun stuff. 
So the, the model is, is like standard, I think, across finance as well. I think it's a, similar to PE, where it's two and 20. So 2% management fee, 20% carry. Firms that are younger, like mine, will often charge 2.5% just to get the firm off the ground in terms of management fees for fund one. And then firms that are just the best performers in the field, like Sequoia and Founders Fund, they actually charge three and 30. They're three and 30. It's interesting that you can charge a premium, you know, being Mm -hmm. like a newcomer in the field. Yeah, I was going to say. You want to buy it or (laughs) not? Yeah, it's funny. Like, I I thought the same thing too. And then the more I talk to folks who are at Funds of Funds and and our investment committee that Funds of Funds, they're like, no, 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 you need to charge more. We all know that that's what it takes. Yeah. I love that everyone just kind of gets that in the industry. The dream, of course, is to be the Sequoia and charge three and 30. (laughs) You got to have the reference to back it up. But so this term carry, when we talk about carry mm-hmm. in investing in, say, fixed income, it means something mm-hmm. very different than it oh. means in talking. Well, I mean, it's something the same, but different, right? It's it's unrealized gains that you mm-hmm. are effectively earning by either rolling down the curve or achieving a financing spread, something like that. What does carry mean in your business? I didn't realize that there was a, a different meaning in different parts of finance. So in, uh, in venture, what we mean by carry is it's the, the chunk of the profits that go to the firm. So let's say you raise a fund and you have $100 million in gain. The 20% of that will go to you. So after you subtract the, the amount that you raise, so let's say it was a $20 million fund, it, it became a $100 million fund. So now you subtract the gain, so it's $80 million was actually what you profited. And 20% of that is going to go to the firm. 80% of that is going to go to the limited partners. So mm-hmm. that 20% then gets split however the general partnership is set up. And that's the bulk of the money. That's what's taxed as long-term capital gains which is controversial, maybe a little bit in policy circles, but it's that tax structure also that has led to the proliferation of venture, which one could argue is why the U.S. is so innovative in terms of tech, because mm-hmm. it has this financial ecosystem to support innovation. So. Which makes sense. It's sort of like on the back end, though, with the private equity firms where they're buying companies and just piling debt on. It's like, well, is that really innovation? <laughs> but yeah, no, I agree. It makes sense on the venture side. And talk about valuations. So I know that you've said Mm -hmm. that so much of what you do is evaluating founders. And I'd love to get into that process in a sec. But from just Mm -hmm. a more, if we zoom out from a macroeconomic standpoint right now, you know, have you guys heard the Tina versus Tara? Oh, no. So so Mm -hmm. this is like a jargony (laughs) thing in finance circles. So Tina stands for there is no alternative. And Tara stands Mm -hmm. for there are reasonable alternatives. It's like so we've the been market, a, right? We've been in a Tina world in an environment where interest rates have been zero, basically, right? Mm-hmm. Equities have been on a tear for as long as the Fed has been in a quantitative easing right. mode. And so, yes, valuations are high, but what else are you going to buy when all other things are earning zero other than investing in private equity, private credit, venture capital, all this fun stuff? Now you can park your money in a risk-free fund and earn five and a half, six percent how can you then justify buying private equity or investing in venture capital where it's such a risky investment and valuations are already so hot? So how are you yeah. navigating fundraising and investing in, in that environment? Excellent question. So historically, I'm pretty sure that venture has been the highest returning asset class of all. Again, it's not easy. And most venture funds suck. I think that we win. Well, <laughs> so it's either zero or the uh, highest returning asset class of all. Yeah. Okay, great. 
if you're good, you're phenomenal. And if you're yeah. not, you're done. You don't exist right. anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, it's super and so, high risk. And right. it takes a while to figure out which one's which. Unfortunately, it's like a 10 year horizon here. <laughs> but there's going to be a wiping out of a lot of firms. But I think the average firm return either is a 1x or just under 1x. So like a fund might raise 100 million bucks and that average fund will either just return that 100 or maybe bring back 95. So you're, you're going to lose money? You're losing money. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. The best sales pitch ever, Camillo. No thanks. <laughs> well, that's the average, right? Like <laughs> there's too many funds out there. The, the best ones are not doing that. So an example mm-hmm. of the returns that, that occur in venture, Union Square Ventures, which is a firm based out in New York City, venture capital dominates California. It's kind of the hub of the Union Square Ventures is kind of an outlier in the fact that it's one of the best firms in the country and it's based in New York. They got, here's an example, the University of Texas Endowment just released some data recently. So they invested $129 million in USB uh, uh-huh. across a few of their funds. And they returned $1.18 billion to the University of Texas. Endowment. Okay, now that's insane. So that, that supports a lot of financial aid for these universities, right? And so that's why endowments and these big funds will invest in venture. It's just an amazing asset class when you find good managers. Okay, cool. So it's the prospect of these incredibly high returns that are so outsized. But it's just like with everything else in finance, right? It's it's everyone chasing this insane target that very, very few mm-hmm. people achieve, whereas the average, again, the average fund is not even giving <laughs> you your principal. Okay. So in now the current environment where those extremely high returns seem even riskier, how do mm-hmm. you justify the ask to people to invest with you? Yeah. So I think fortunately that folks that invest in venture funds are mostly... The lower end is like family offices. Yes, you have some high net worth kind of below that, but family offices, fund of funds, and then institutionals like endowments, foundations, pensions, et cetera. They all have a certain percentage of their uh, pool of money allocated to venture. This is the Yale model, which you guys may, may or may not have talked about in another podcast. I'm not sure. No, we uh, haven't. So the, we haven't. Okay. So David Swenson, legendary investor and manager of the Yale Endowment, pioneered this notion of investing across different asset classes, like uh-huh. alternative assets. Everything from like commodities and timber all the way to PE and, and VC and all that. And that's, you know, grew the Yellow Endowment in this legendary way. And, and now basically everyone follows the David Swenson model of investing uh, at that institutional level, whether you're an endowment or a foundation or even a family office, you're trying to diversify your portfolio. You're not just investing in equities. And so everyone has this, like, whatever it may be, 5% of their asset pool dedicated to venture. So there's going to be an allocation to venture no matter what. It's just then about getting that piece of that allocation from that fund to fund, that endowment, et cetera. Um, so irrespective of what's going on in the environment, there's going to be that allocation anyway. The problem right now, and the reason why I like venture is it, it's in the headlines, like it's tough to raise for venture for right now yeah. is because of the denominator effect. So again, you have a hundred dollars, right? To invest in five of those dollars is allocated to venture. And then whatever, like $30 is allocated to public equities. Because the market went down earlier in the year and last year, there was a call the denominator effect kicked in. So now your share of venture dollars went up as your equity portfolio shrank, which created this imbalance in people's portfolios. And then further exacerbating what the problem was that during the pandemic, venture valuations went up. So now your mm. allocation of venture again further increased relative to yep. all your other assets. And then everyone freaked out on the pension foundation. Everyone looks so overweight and they think they need to rebalance. Interesting. So So, is that happening? Are you seeing pension funds rebalancing out of VC? 
Uh, for sure. People are trimming their, their, the number of managers. People are reassessing and reevaluating their managers. It's definitely a struggle, I think, for folks who are raising at that level. Again, like those funds of funds and, and endowments, they write really, really big checks. Like Harvard's writing $50 million checks at minimum. It's definitely being felt across the industry, no matter, no matter what the size of the check, uh, it is definitely happening. So. But they're not, I mean, there's probably pretty long lockups on this money. So it's not like they're liquidating. It's more that they're just not adding. Uh, it's not that they're not adding. And some people are redeeming. Well, they um, are. So yeah, some of these funds and some of even like the very famous funds have had redemption. Yeah. And it's been problematic. And, and some funds that have had some performance issues have had serious redemptions. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's definitely happening. Interesting. Wow. I'm curious what the typical lockup, like what is a typical time horizon yeah. for venture? It's 10 years. That's like the, the standard. And then you get one year extensions. So you might, the average is like, oh, you have two one year extensions. I think there is a fund out there, a really well-known fund that is on year 17. Because, meaning, meaning their investors cannot pull money out. Right. Theoretically, they can sell their stakes, I think, to another fund. Maybe some other fund wants the stake because they need the liquidity. So trying to sell, sell their stake. But that happens when you're a fund that may be invested in Stripe, which is like famously has not gone public yet. And to the frustration of employees and and investors. And so those funds are just still like, hey, we can't distribute because, you know, we have, you know, there's been no liquidity event. Yeah, wait. So talk to me again in this carry model. How can you produce annualized returns? Like, what are you getting as a seed investor, right? If this company hasn't gone public yet, let's say, and you need to deliver some kind of return to everyone who's invested with you in your fund. What are you delivering to them? Is nothing. that nothing? So, so it's, that it's carry, a long-term it play. is, it is carry in the sense, like it is almost like an accrued gain, but it's not paid out in real time. Exactly. It's paid out it's when paid the out. investment goes public or, or is sold. Yeah. 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 I just want to be clear on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a, it's definitely a long-term game, which is why it's hard to tell if you're good or if any fund manager is good, because it's going to take Seven you one data point every out. 10 years. Yeah. Okay. Got yeah. it. Over a long enough time scale. Okay. When you are making investments, is there a normal percent stake that you mm. get 10%, 20%? Obviously, I'm assuming it's going to depend on the valuation, but I was curious, like, what do the economics look like from a X yeah. percent for some amount of money? And again, like this is the finance nerd in me. Can you also just speak a little bit to what the structure of that looks like? Is it preferred or participating preferred and all yeah. that kind of fun stuff? Excellent question. So in venture, you make your money by having great deal flow and then picking winners and then getting into those winners. Now it gets into the economics of it, which is, is like what you're getting at. You have to really have a meaningful chunk of the company in order to make money and return the fund. So for my fund, we're targeting a 5% entry ownership and trying to maintain that ownership over time. Other funds have different numbers based on like the size of the fund and the checks that they write. So if you're a series A investor, you probably want something closer to like 10 to 20 plus percent of the company at that round. So wait, um, so that's interesting. So you're saying that even though you're earlier, you're often taking smaller percentages of the business? Yes, based on the check size. Okay. Oh, so got I'm it. Okay, take, that makes I'm sense. not taking most of the round, whereas like a Series A investor will probably take most of the round, at least half if not most of the round. So for me, it's 5%, and that's like how the economics work out for us to have a meaningful return on the other end. And then how does it work? What are the mechanics? At the pre-seed and seed stage, it's usually a safe. And a got safe, it. just for our listeners, stands for a simple agreement for future equity. So back in the day, they used to be convertible notes. Convertible notes went away when Y Combinator, which some of the listeners may be familiar with, also known as mm-hmm. YC, they put out this financial instrument called a safe, replaced convertible notes. There's no longer this interest-bearing instrument. It became sort of a promissory note without 
Interesting. So most, most pre-seed and seed investments are done on saves with a cap. So it'll be like an $8 million cap, for example, a $10 million cap, and it'll be, you know, whatever, raising 2 million on 10, as people will say. And they need post money usually, not pre-money, although sometimes it's good to clarify. And, and can um, you just define for our listeners when you say pre-money versus post-money? Pre-money is sort of, I'm investing $2 million in a $10 million pre. It means that what, after the investment, it's really a $12 million post. So usually we want to talk about post or at least clarify if we're talking about post or pre uh, so that you know what percentage is being bought. Got the it. $2 million pre versus $2 million post is, is uh, very different, like what chunk is being sold. So that's what happens at pre-seed and seed. At series A, sometimes at seed, but it's still usually safe. And at series A and beyond, it's all equity financing. So people are buying shares in the business and the saves convert at that equity financing. So if they're safe that were signed, they all convert to equity at that first equity fund. Got it. And so and- one of the things you spoke about was your role in evaluating founders. So mm-hmm. what kind of criteria and what kind of rubric do you put these founders through in order to determine their worthiness for your investment? Great question. And so I'll preface it by saying that my rubric will be different from someone who is investing in Series A and Series B. My forte is pre-seed and seed. And at that, yep. that stage, I'm investing in the founder. It's not so much the idea. The idea is kind of like what might whet your appetite when you get the pitch deck you know, through your email or whatever. But it's really the founder at the end of the day that's going to make or break that deal. And what I look for is, it, is really top 1% founders, founders that I think are going to build generational businesses. And for me, that criteria is around two things. One is horsepower. Does this person have the capacity to learn and execute at great speed? So I have this analogy in my mind that I always think about. And I don't know if you remember, but there was like one of the Matrix movies. Neo's like running away from like, you know, the bad Matrix people. And he like jumps into this helicopter, but he doesn't know how to fly. And he's with whatever her name is. Oh, yeah, he does the little download. (laughs) Yes, exactly. He does the download. So he's like, all right, he needs to download how to fly a helicopter. And then he like flies the helicopter. So that's the <laughs> avatar for your founder is someone. That's like what I it's like. I've been in the shoes or I'm like, I don't know how to do this. When I was a founder, I'm like, I need to just learn, right? You learn really fast how to right. do X, Y, and Z. Right. And it can be the nitty gritty of your industry or it can be like, how do I hire VP of sales? How do I like build a product ready? Yeah. Or this morning learn. we were like, all right, we've got to file our EIN number with TikTok. And Kristen's calling me and I'm like, I need the exactly. plug in the back of my head so I can figure out how to be a CFO. Exactly. <laughs> the second is vision. I love founders that can marry that horsepower with an extraordinary vision of the way the world should be that isn't today. And that's rarer than you think. And it's not just having the vision, but being able to sell it. Ultimately, as a founder CEO, you're always selling. You're selling that vision to your employees, to new recruits, to your existing investors, to future investors. I love finding someone who has a strong vision and then knows how to sell it because I know that they're going to be able to hire the best talent, that they're going to be able to get future financings. And that's going to increase the odds of success of that business. If I run into a founder that doesn't have that visionary power, it makes me question, like, are they going to be able to get good talent? Are they going to be able to get more money from future investors? So such an interesting point. So it's like you need to be essentially be like a salesperson a little bit. It's like Adam Newman, except for like, actually don't. I think all the best CEOs at the end of the day are salespeople. You know, it's it's obviously just so hard to quantify. And so Mm -hmm. when you're allocating hard dollars to something and it's like, well, I just have a good feeling about this person that can become such a nebulous, tricky thing. And having been in their shoes, too, it sounds like you know what the pitfalls are. You're like, okay, well, I remember what I was good at and what I wasn't and where my own personal struggles may have been. I need to solve for that and whomever I'm investing in. 
Exactly. So I have that experience as a founder. And I remember actually when I first got to California and had to go to a demo day and pitch my startup and I was coached into being a visionary pitch person. So I know that it's a learnable skill. Uh, of course, love seeing it with when in folks who, who already have it, but I know it's learnable. And then when I was coming up as a founder, quote unquote, I was surrounded by people who became the Airbnb founders, the Strike founders, Talk Desk. Like I knew all these founders in real life because they were all up and coming when I was. So I can see the difference between those kinds of founders and the folks who don't make it. There's just like telltale signs. For example, in my batch, so I went through an accelerator, I went through 500 startups, which is a talk, uh, about, talk about that a little bit more. What's, what's yeah. an accelerator? An accelerator is a program and the most famous one is YC, Y Combinator. It's a program that works usually in a batch process. So you'll get like 30 companies together and then the, the folks running the program will help these founders through the different uh, challenges of, of being an early stage founder, like how to put together a deck, how to do early product, how to pitch investors. You kind of walk through a lot of those basics together and it's a great network. So YC's you know, advantage today now is that it has an amazing roster of alums from DoorDash to Airbnb to Stripe, some of the most legendary companies have come out of YC. And at the end of this accelerator program, you'll have a demo day where you, you know, go up in front of investors and you have a minute or two to pitch your startup in front of a room full of hundreds of people. It's daunting, it's scary, but it's a really good forcing function to get really good at pitching and really get your business together. So that's what an accelerator is. It's like the uh, America's Next Top Model of, uh, of startups. <laughs> well, I was going to say, it's, yeah. it's like what they had in Silicon Valley, no? The show, uh, the I, show, yeah, the HBO show. show. Okay. So the show was, it was, it came out when I was a founder and very early in my founder days. It was too traumatic for me to watch. It was like my daily life on TV. I was like, so I, it was, I'm so the you would say it's pretty I've accurate. never watched Too Big to yes. Fail. Oh, that's there interesting. Too accurate. And I knew some of the people that they were making Mocking. fun of. Yeah. And, and I was just like, oh my God, this is not like what I want to watch at the end of my long day. Not relaxing. <laughs> <It's> so <laughs> it's funny. Well, what basically, if anyone question? wants to get an idea, go watch, go watch Silicon Valley if you have it. Yeah, totally. And what does Y Combinator get out of it at the end of the day? Do these startups pay to be in there or? They get equity. Oh, so, so they, they get equity in the companies that they choose? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so, you know, they have equity in DoorDash, Stripe, Airbnb, massive companies, Segment. Oh, oh I see. Companies. So Coin it's days. a free option for them and they're promising you, I see. Yeah, nice little gig. Yeah. So it's a, I don't know what their returns look like if they're very opaque in terms, because they're not like a traditional venture firm. You may have like very, very, very few LPs. Like I'm not even exaggerating, maybe three total or something from what I've heard. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, the returns on that must be spectacular. <laughs> That's really cool. And so you talked a little bit about things coming across your desk, like, oh, what, mm -hmm. what comes across my desk? How does something come across your desk? How does someone find you? How does someone, again, aside from the sequoias of the world, which even lonely yeah. I have heard of, how does someone identify a venture capital firm, pitch themselves to you and try to figure out if they're a good fit? Yeah. So I think it depends on what stage your firm is at. So the sequoias and benchmarks of the world, like everyone wants to go pitch them. So they get a lot of inbound and they can kind of filter some other inbound based on the sources, right? Like, oh, this... This other investor is really good. We trust them. They're, we're going to take that meeting. So those guys work a lot on inbound and they might do some outbound for sure. Like they're trying to research what's up and coming. They have scout programs, which are basically these, they'll give young people usually like, here's hundred K go invest in companies and then tell us about them. So that's how they have their feelers out in the world. 
firms like mine were smaller, you know, we don't have that kind of brand presence across the world yeah. or certainly in the Valley. Mm-hmm. Or so yes, yes. It's a little different. So like I'm more out in the weeds, like I'm out meeting founders all the time. I'm part of WhatsApp and signal groups and for exited founder groups where I'm constantly getting deal flow in my inbox. I was part of a first round capitals angel track, which is a masterclass program that first round capital, which is a really well-respected venture firm put on. And so it's a lot of operators and some former founders in that group that get a great deal flow from their ex-colleagues at whatever they were, you know, Meta, Google, Uber, they share deals and then like a Slack group and an email group. And so tons of these kinds of inbounds for me are really, really, really great. But I'm also out there going to events and meeting founders and serendipitously creating luck, right? Like you got to increase and create your own luck in business. So it sounds like networking is yes. the single most valuable skill that someone who's in this industry wants to be in this industry or is looking to fund their startup needs to have mastered. Mm-hmm. Exactly. This is a relationship business, like 100%. You got to have a network. And yeah, yeah, I heard this saying, your network is your net worth and mm-hmm. could not be more true in the in this industry. Who you know is, is everything. So many of our, you'd probably be shocked to hear this, Camilla, but we will literally get questions. How do you network? What do you do? And I think for a lot of people who came up in our generation, it's like, what do you mean? What do you do? You just, you know, you go out to the networking events, you put yourself out there, you reach out to people, you send emails, you make phone calls, you send text messages, you do all these things, right? You get into these groups. Mm But let's say we're taking young people who come from, let's say, non-target schools who aren't at the Mm -hmm. GSBs, aren't at the Princetons and Browns of the world or coming internationally, don't have the kind of connections into the industry that so many people who have been successful in this industry do. What advice would you give to them in order to break into this industry and get those networking opportunities? Excellent question. I think there's like lots of paths in that I've seen from, you know, non-traditional folks or non-traditional schooled folks or whatever. One is like, if you go to work at a big tech company, they don't really care where you went to school as long as you're awesome. And some of these these shops have amazing talent. When I was at Meta, the talent density was incredible. Everyone was just the best, whether they're a designer, an engineer, a product, whatever it was, marketing. And the vast majority didn't come from Harvard, Princeton, Yale, or anything like that. They came from all, most of them actually immigrants. Like they, Facebook is a huge percentage of folks that are immigrants. And so being at that kind of place, you're going to, you're going to meet great people. You're also going to have some access to capital. You're making a good paycheck and you're going to be able to deploy some of that. Uh, you're going to meet people as you deploy that. So I think that's like one way to do it. And also some of the people go up the ranks at some of these shops and then become well-known operators in the Valley and everyone respects them. Nobody cares that nobody even knows where people went to school, to be honest, it doesn't matter. And then they become like a presence in terms of investing world. So that's one path for sure. Uh, I think the other is just really being a founder. Get in there and either join an early stage startup or be a founder yourself. And you'll meet tons of other founders that way and have a a network. And over time, I think of Silicon Valley as like an onion. You kind of work your way into the inner Uh layers of the onion as you get to know more people and get to be part of more, for lack of a better word, like elite kind of circles. But again, they don't, doesn't matter like where you went to school. It's more do people respect you? You're elite within the industry and and the most talented people within the industry, not elite. And as far as any, what you look like or where you came from, all that nonsense. So Jen and I, when we first wanted to start a podcast, I said, I'm going to look for a podcast and how to start a podcast. I'm going to join a Facebook group on how to start a podcast. Is there anything that you think that someone who is like, I have this amazing idea and I just need a little bit extra help. Is there anything that you would tell people you should be reading this, listening to this, joining this community? Yes. 
Uh, for sure. One, there's a couple books. The Secrets of Sand Hill Road is basically like, how does venture capital work? The Lean Startup, which is somewhat controversial, I think generally speaking, not controversial, but it's like how to start a business in a very lean way and like iterate and test. Some VCs disagree with that methodology of starting a business, but it is certainly a popular one. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think reading that for sure. And I think once you have an idea or a team, a co-founder, it's really either immersing yourself in the, those circles, whether it's in New York City, I'm, there's a tech scene there, certainly mm -hmm. in, in San Francisco and the Bay Area, immersing yourself in those events and circles. And then joining an accelerator. I think joining an accelerator is like the best way yeah. to get immersed very quickly. When we moved to, to Mountain View, to California, uh, we knew no one. Literally showed up here, didn't know a single soul. It was kind of terrifying. You know, you're starting a business, moving to a new, completely new state across the country, didn't know a soul. And we did 500 startups and it was a turnkey network. Suddenly we knew a ton of amazing founders, ton of amazing mentors were operators of the Valley were well-known. And it unlocked a lot of doors for us because we're like, hey, we're part of this well-known accelerator. People are like, okay, sure, let's meet. That's so cool. Um, so and do you have to apply? Recommend. You have to They're apply. extremely yeah. rigorous. I mean, the- it's hard to get in. One thing you touched on earlier, Camilla, was that one of the parts of the partnership between a venture capital firm and the startup that it's funding is this ongoing mentorship. Can you talk mm -hmm. a little bit about how much control and how much involvement you tend to have in and over the companies that you invest in, what that looks like on a day-to-day -day basis, what that looks like at different seed stages, and how long that tends to last? Yeah. So at the pre-seed and seed stage, a company usually isn't taking board members. So the board will still consist of the founders, uh, but they're not adding to that board until usually the Series A. That's more typical. So I don't have any direct control uh, over the business by, by investing at the pre-seed and seed stage. Certainly Series A investors and beyond will take board seats and whatnot. And Zadrap will have serious uh, control over the business. What I have is more the trust that I build with my founders. So often founders will send like a great update to their investors being like, things are amazing. Yay, look at our numbers up to the right. And then they'll call me and be like, oh my God, this is like the 10 fires I actually have going on. Can you help me? Uh, and, no, no, and, at least they're being honest yeah, with you. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And that's, that's like one of the value adds for me and for them in, in the relationship and like why we do well in terms of getting into deals is because as a former founder, they know that I have seen it all. Like I have seen crazy situations. I have lived through crazy situations. And so I'm not scared of hearing whatever crazy situation they're going to be telling me over the phone. I'm like, sure, part for the course, that crazy thing happened. Cool. Like we'll, we'll get through this. Whereas most venture investors who've never been founders or operators, they get terrified. And so there isn't that trust. And so as a founder, you usually don't trust your cap table. You don't trust your investors. Interesting. So um, yeah. one question, actually, do you think that a lot of venture funds that are really good and successful tend to actually be former founders? Yes. Venture. And so <laughs> this is this is kind of this ideological divide that you find in Silicon Valley. I am part of the camp that believes that only former founders or early stage operators should be investors because how can you say that you're qualified to give advice to a founder if you've never been in their shoes. Like, that doesn't make any sense to me. So I'm part of that camp. Yes, there are amazing exceptions to that rule. Mike Moritz, very famously at Sequoia, was a journalist before he joined Sequoia. He's a legend among legends. So there are definitely exceptions to the rule. But I think broadly speaking, I think, yeah, the, the best investors are former founders. Makes sense. And so if you're not a former founder, though, like, for example, Camilo, didn't you do an internship in venture capital mm -hmm. in college? Yeah. Like, yeah. You didn't have any experience then. How do you break None. into the industry? Yeah. 
without that some people do it. experience. Yeah. Totally. Um, you know, some people will, I've seen a couple paths. I have a friend from college, one of our classmates, Jen, actually, who's a partner at Excel, and he's, he spent his whole career in venture. I think he did a year at like a growth shop and then went to Excel and has been at Excel since then, you know, the last, mm -hmm. whatever, 17 years. Uh, so you do, you do see this. Uh, there are definitely exceptions to, to, to the rule I described. Folks who came from banking, you see people who worked in like the technology practice mm -hmm. at Goldman who might Shifter. Because again, if you're, especially if you're in later stage, you know, understanding how to value a company yeah. over the long run seems like the biggest skill, mm -hmm. evaluating the charisma of the founder, obviously less so once they've proven themselves. Yeah, um, exactly. So I've seen that. I've seen people who started at growth investing and then went down the ladder to series A, series B, and then went further down to pre-seed and seed eventually, uh, but they started their career in finance on Wall Street. And yeah. so we get questions like this all the time, which is how do I break into whatever it is, private equity, hedge funds, venture capital. Mm -hmm. I mean, it almost seems like the clearest path is like, be a founder, have a successful company, <laughs> and then you can right. break in. I think it versus, right. that is yeah. the clearest path. I think yeah. it's very different from a lot of the other quote unquote mm -hmm. exit opportunities that we've covered on our podcast. Whereas yeah. at the end of the day, the best path to, I think, being successful in venture capital is standing next to a big pile of money, right? Is having that network, <laughs> is knowing as many people yeah. as possible in the industry. And uh, I mean, I'm being a little facetious here. Obviously, it's way more complex than that, but it seems like being able to value a company is almost like incidental to it. It's like, oh, that's a nice mm -hmm. skill that you should have, but that's not the same kind of prerequisite that it is to go into, say, private equity. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think this is where we're going to see uh, a, a wiping out of a lot of funds because there, there was definitely this moment in the last several years where anyone with a pulse could raise a big fund, right? It was mm -hmm. insane. Uh, and to your point, like, oh, they're just adjacent to a big pile of money. And so mm -hmm. like, they could raise the fund. But now we're going to see how that actually plays out, right? Can they actually, do they actually have good deal flow? Can they pick deals? And they, can they get an into deals? Because you can, mm -hmm. you might be able to have the skill to pick a deal, maybe just because like, oh, Sequoia's in that deal, I should get in, whatever it is. That's not that hard. But can you actually get in? That's hard, right? Mm -hmm. uh, really good companies are often picky. They can choose about who they get on their cap table. And so... That's a skill in and of itself is, is winning a deal and getting in. We'll see. As far as a venture, because that's something I never thought of. We always think of, or maybe it's just me, but I always think of it from the standpoint of being the founder, being like, please invest. And I have to convince you why. I never thought of it as how you guys are competing with each other for a share of this yeah. itty bitty company that's just starting out. So what do you do to differentiate yourself from other venture capital firms competing for the same deal? Yeah, that's an excellent question and a really important one. I think differentiation is absolutely critical. So for us, it's two things. One, we have a background in AI, so we know what we're talking about. I see a lot of great venture shops, for example, that have no idea what they're doing in AI. They're like, this is brand new. We just heard about them nine months ago. Uh, they're like, we found that the Snuggy, like we know how to evaluate like blankets, but we don't know anything about artificial intelligence. <laughs> yeah, it's totally new to them. So that's, that's like one element. Frankly, the element that resonates the most with our founders. So yeah, at Perceptive, uh, my firm, we invest in AI first companies. So there's an AI component, of course, that having that background is helpful. And then the other one is what we talked about in terms of being former founders. Every time I talk to a founder, I tell them what we do in our background. They're like, oh, there's this like wave of relief that washes over them. Like, mm -hmm. oh my God, you get it. You've been there. This is what I've been looking for for my cap table. Someone who really gets it. And so that that gets us into hot deals where people are like, no, we really want you because I want to be able to call you and have you as a resource because I know that I'm going to encounter 
bad things. Uh, and I need someone to talk through those things with. And so that's been a huge differentiator for us. Wow. Really? And actually, when you say for our cap table, can you explain it for our listeners who might not actually know what that is? So the cap table is your capitalization table. So it's, it lists your investors who has a stake in your company. It's a very important table. You don't want it to get too messy. As uh, you know, investors will say, messy means like too many people with all sorts of different structures in there. Like you want a very clean cap table, the fewer, the better. But your cap table, are, those are your investors. That's who is you're going to have to pick up and, and the phone and, and say, hey, things are amazing or we're going to have to shut down. So it matters. And I know that you do the majority of your work, obviously, as you've said, in the AI and tech space. Mm-hmm. What are, without giving away any state <laughs> secrets, what are some of the most exciting or like common themes that you're seeing coming across your desk these days? So interestingly, I think there's a difference between the exciting ones and the common ones. Touche. The, the common ones, and this is a refrain that folks will hear a lot in Silicon Valley, is that there's a lot of rappers, product rappers on GPT. Oh, I so thought you meant I like rapper. I was like, what? LL Cool J, not to be dating myself there, but yeah. Oh my God. Um, okay, so start over. So there's a lot of rappers on chat GPT. What the heck does that mean? So it means that these companies are basically interfaces. They're, you know, what I would say is like just a UX or UI layer, user experience, mm-hmm. user interface layer on an existing capability that ChatGPT already provides. So they're not actually doing anything usually much more than what you could just go to ChatGPT and do. But now you have like a dedicated website to go, hey, write my marketing copy. And it's like, well, you could also just go to ChatGPT. There's okay. a lot of that. It's controversial because most of these businesses don't have, as a, as a result of that, don't have a moat, what we call a moat in the business, right? There's no proprietary element to what they do. And we want to invest M-O-A-T in, or M-O-T? M-O-A-T. So usually you want to invest in a business that has a moat because like they got to be defensible against competitors. That yeah. said, a lot of businesses were, that are successful did not have moats. Amazon just sold books online. There was no mm-hmm. moat. Right. But they had a great strategy and perfect execution against that strategy. Again, amazing founder. So going back to what's common, we see a lot of rappers on GPT. It's tough to differentiate who's going to win and who's going to die because they're all just kind of the same. And usually if there are any winners, they're just going to be the most well capitalized one, which is not a game that I want to play because then it becomes like, do you have access to billions of dollars? Are you backed by Tiger or Sequoia? Uh, That's not fun. But then what's interesting (laughs) is like the infrastructure layer of AI, which is getting built out now. My analog here is like what happened in the 80s and 90s in tech, where, you know, you had like the Cisco's and Juniper Networks and Sun Microsystems, like the infrastructure layer of computing got built out so that we could then have the internet and then the applications built on top of the internet. So where it, to me, it feels like we're still in the 80s and 90s of, of AI, where we're oh, still yeah, laying down like the groundwork. That. And then we'll have like a massive boom in the application layer beyond that. Not to say that application companies won't survive today. And Microsoft famously, you know, started in the 80s and is still, you know, an amazing company. But for the most part, I think we're still in like the infrastructure layer. So I have a question. Within these funds, you talked about that two and 20 model. Obviously, Mm -hmm. that two and 20 model that we're so used to in, say, the hedge fund world applies very, very differently than it does in the venture capital world. Can you speak a little bit to, okay, those profits that come through at the end of the cycle of this investment, how are those divvied up within the firm? Like, how do you allocate based on okay, well, you were the person who, I don't know, brought in this lead. You were the person who mentored them throughout it. Or is it just everyone's wearing the same hat, so it's all divided pretty equally? Uh, Really good question. So every venture firm does it differently. 
And I mentioned earlier that Benchmark is unique and that they split their carry equally, mm -hmm. which is very, very different model, frankly, than, than most shops. I would say that a lot of emerging firms are starting to split their carry equally more and more. I think they see themselves really as equal partners, no matter what their backgrounds and whatnot, as they go into a firm. However, the majority of firms, there is one or there are one or two people that are the managing partners that bring in, they take in the bulk of the carry. Mm -hmm. um, so they're usually the founders of the firm or very, very senior partners that the firm is very old and has had a uh, leadership transition. So there's usually a person or two that is taking the bulk of it. And then the rest gets split out between the junior partners. And then some firms will dole out carry to some of the folks below partnership level. So maybe some principals will get like a few bips of carry as part of their compensation, but certainly partners and above like your junior partner and then all the way up to general partners are where the bulk of the carry is going. And you've tossed around so many different modifications to the term partner. What is yeah. the actual difference oh, between general question. partner, limited partner, junior partner, senior partner? Yeah. Like what are all these distinctions? So at the very top you have uh, general partner and, and then within the general partnership is so there's usually one or two people who are the managing partners. Mm -hmm. So venture firms have three entities. Most people don't know this. They think it's like one LLC or mm -hmm. well, We don't know uh, anything. So yeah. it's, no, no, no. it's like, for us. it's, it's great. very weird and opaque. Uh, so there's three entities. There's a limited partnership, which is where the funds get invested into. Mm -hmm. There's a management company. And then there's the GP, the general partnership. So the managing members are usually the owners of the management company. They're the most senior folks uh, in the firm. They usually run the firm. They're the, in, it's a Koya. They're called the stewards of the firm. And they're part of a general partnership as well. So you have your GPs. Once you're a GP at a fund, you've kind of made it. Like you don't have okay. to be a managing member to make it. Your GP has made it. Below that, you have partners. So these folks, they have a nice chunk of carry, but it's still not that much. Like you're not going to, you're probably not going to crush it and get, you're not going to be a billionaire being like a junior partner. And those folks have usually worked their way up to being a junior partner or they came in from outside. They were former founders and got hired to be partners. Same thing with general partners. And those folks are bringing in deals, but they're often, they don't usually have check writing authority. Mm -hmm. So they might be part of the investment process, but they're not saying, they're not going to that company and saying, here's your term sheet. I'm taking you to the partners and, you know, writing a $5 million check for you. Like that's, they don't have that yet. GPs have check writing authority. They're the ones who are actually saying, yes, we approved this deal. Yes, we're behind it. Does that make sense? Yes. I had no idea about this divided structure. And everyone, yeah. by the way, has to contribute to the fund as well. Uh, so it's like a law firm. When you become a partner, you have to like buy it. So like that, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot law firms did that. It's such a mm -hmm. different world. Um, but yeah, at a, at a firm, once you make partner, partner and above, partner or DP, you're contributing to the fund. You're expected to contribute to the fund. And LPs love this because it creates alignment with LPs, right? Like you're yeah. all bought in this pool of money to try to grow that pool of money. So it's an awesome form of alignment. And it could be like a significant amount, right? The GP is expected to contribute 1% of the fund. So wow. you can imagine at these funds scale, like that's a lot of money. Can they get yeah. financing for that? I know with yes. private equity firms, they can, if they have to contribute 1% or whatever, they can go like finance 80% of it. Exactly. Yeah. So for, for example, if you were to join Andreessen as a partner, you know, there is an X amount that you're expected to contribute and they help you finance whatever that is. And there's also what's called a cashless commit. So if you're a GP, let's say your commitment's a million dollars, you're not exactly expected to put in a million in cash. You can put in some of that into a cashless commit. So maybe half of that is cashless, which means that the fee that you would be taking in actually goes, instead of going to you, is actually diverted back into the fund. 
uh, as part of your commitment. Very interesting. So one question we got on TikTok, which I'm just going to ask you, is I was doing a I was doing a series on the treasury stock method and calculating equity value, incorporating options. And obviously, we know that stock based compensation is huge in the tech world. And so someone asked the question, like, how are option prices struck when a company goes public? Uh, OK, so it's usually based on a 409A valuation. So what the most heck companies is a 409A <laughs> valuation? Yeah. I'm taking notes. So as every private company has two valuations, actually, you can even say three. So there's the 409A valuation, which means an outside firm has to come in and kind of audit the company and say, I think this company is worth X amount. And that's your 409A valuation. And that's what we're going to tell the IRS you are worth. Uh, that's your 409A. Then there's like what the private markets will say is your valuation. You know, essentially what your valuation was at the last financing. So you're worth a billion dollars because that's what, you know, the Series B investors. <laughs> got it, got worth. it, got it. Different from your 409 valuation. Yeah. <laughs> and you want your strike price usually to be at the 409A valuation, which is oftentimes a lot lower, intentionally lower than your private valuation that you got at the last financing. Sure. You know, it's much more beneficial for employees for it to be lower. And so just to summarize, I used to joke when I would teach deferred taxes and all that kind of fun stuff. I'd say like, there's the number you're showing the IRS like for tax books. And then there's the valuation book. They're two different numbers. But you're saying that it would be struck at what the outside audit firms who do the tax valuation. Essentially, you're saying that the strike price would be based on the tax valuation of the business. Based on the 409. The 409. Yes, sorry. The 409A. I keep calling it a tax. Yeah. You want it to be the lowest possible valuation. Yeah, you as a, you as a founder want that for your employees. You as an employee want that. Uh, it, it, it's definitely the way to go. And yeah, a little bit, a hundred percent, a little bit different than than the public markets. Because when I was at Meta, yeah, my RSUs were based on the last thirty days of before my grant was made. Right, mm-hmm. so it was like the average of those thirty days or whatever. Oh, you're lucky um, they gave you RSUs and not options. I always yeah yeah yeah. RSUs are, are have become kind of the default, at least in in the big tech. Uh, so like the Google, Facebooks, etc. They all do RSUs. Yes, much, much, much better for employees. Yeah. RSUs are expensive for businesses, um, which is why well, you don't see it as much in private. Well, yeah, well, because and I always used to explain it to people as it's like an option without a strike. So instead of having to yeah. pay the company cash to get your share, you just get it free and clear. And so yeah. when I did that Pinterest example, Jen, there was only like 14 million options and like 55 million RSUs. But mm-hmm. those are shares that just are given to employees versus like the 14 million options people have to actually pay for it. Versus yeah, <laughs> you pay and then get paid and they have to pay tax yeah. when, when you have yeah. options, which is really tough for a lot of employees because now you have this huge tax bill mm-hmm. that you have to pay uh, and you don't actually have liquidity. Right. So it's it's not it's not ideal. I don't know, like your listeners are familiar with tech compensation at Big Tech, but something like 60 percent of your comp is in RSUs. It's actually kind of funny. You see these headlines of business insider like, oh, my God, engineers that met at me, two hundred and twenty thousand dollars. And it's like, it's actually a lot more than that. Um, that's like, <laughs> that'll literally just be the cash component. And then they yeah. might have an extra like 400K in RSUs on top of that a year. Mm-hmm. And so the compensation is more like 600K. But again, it's mostly in equity in RSUs. And then your compensation is actually totally based on the price that you got when you joined that grant price for your refresher when you joined. So if you joined Meta, for example, and you got a grant at like, I don't know, $200, and then the stock falls to like $100 a share suddenly your comp looks very, very different uh, <laughs> right. than what you thought you were going to get. It can be dicey for employees, frankly, but it can also be amazing upside. But, you know, that's the risk you take. Cool. Well, Camilla, this was awesome. Thank you so much. I've learned yeah. a ton during this. 
Any final words of wisdom that you'd want to share with our listeners who are interested in the VC world? Yeah, I mean, I think this is the one of the best times ever to start a company or be an investor, frankly. There's a lot of amazing talent that's been laid off, that's hungry to start something. There's no better time right now to start something because there's amazing resources available to folks. Like maybe 20 years ago, you had to be in San Francisco or the Bay Area to really mm. get immersed in startup culture. But now you can really do it from anywhere through Zoom and, and a bunch of online resources. So I recommend just folks get their feet wet, jump in, meet startups. And it's also easy to get started as an investor. You don't have to write $100,000 checks. I know a lot of people who got started writing $5,000 checks. That's a good way to learn. That's awesome. So well, thank you so much, Kill. We really appreciate your time and, and all of your knowledge of course. And, and your friendship as always. Of course. All this right, was well, super thank fun. You so Likewise. Much. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to The Wall Street Skinny. We are more than just a podcast. So follow us on TikTok and Instagram at The Wall Street Skinny. If you're a visual learner, we have content that will help get you up the curve from valuation to Excel to Bond Fundamentals 101. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to our YouTube channel where we will be publishing in-depth tutorials on all this and more. 